Broadcasting from Montreal, Quebec, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... Park picnics in the Democratic People's Republic, the Kim Dynasty, cult or religion, and rules for communist clam cooking. Join me in conversation with writer and journalist John Dunbar as we peer behind the kimchi curtain on holiday in North Korea. Let's talk about the outside world's perspective on North Korea. So, if you're the New York Times mm-hmm. and you're doing some like throwaway article about how the North has changed the time zone to commemorate the 70th anniversary of independence from Japan, uh, how do you describe North Korea? They're setting up another barricade between themselves and the outside world. This one is temporal. Mm. I find that fascinating. If I was the New York Times, I'd probably just be saying. Uh, you know, North Korea an attack on us on American soil is imminent or something because the media doesn't do a very good job of covering North how do, Korea. How do they frame the characteristics of the country? Uh, basically, it's uh, an insane cult with a leader who's willing to press the button as soon as he can. Um, and there's starvation and they believe all sorts of things about their leaders that deify them. It's kind of in the right direction, but ignorant and misses the mark. And often, all, always, uh, very often can kind of uh, tarnish South Korea in the process too. Right, Kim Jong Un is often described as like a madman, a god figure. Um, yeah, it's it's a little unclear still how he's perceived by the North Korean people. When I went there in 2010, um, one of the guys in my group, his mission was to ask everybody he met, "Does Kim Jong Il have any children?" And the the consistent answer was, "Not that I know of." And then he spoke to one girl who was working in a post office who didn't know a word of English, so didn't have to be trained or anything. Uh, who said, ah, uh, yeah, I think he's got, like, a son named, like, Kim Jong-un. Like, got the name wrong or something. But didn't know that she shouldn't be saying things like that. So when you visited, it was still during Kim Jong-il's reign? Uh, yeah, Kim Jong-il died in, uh, I think, wasn't that end of 2011? So, like, a year and a half before uh, his death. Why do we call it the Hermit Kingdom? Uh, Hermit Kingdom is an old word that I think was applied to Korea, or Joseon at the time, to shame them for not connecting with the... Uh, uh, you know, the, the imperial powers who are coming to trade. South Korean people do not really appreciate it when you call South Korea their hermit kingdom. But, you know, North Korea is our enemy, so we can say whatever we want and not have to fact-check or face the consequences, unless you're Sony. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that term is still applied to North Korea to show how it's, you know, doing the same thing that Joseon did for centuries, uh, cut itself off from the rest of the world in the belief it was better off on its own. Did you see the interview? I try really hard to stay disengaged from like popular culture media about North Korea. Uh, like, yeah, it just—it uh, seems like it would probably taint me in a way. Like, if you want to actually have good knowledge about North Korea, talk to people who have been there, who've worked there, who are from there, uh, who've defected. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough that my social group—you know—it's not rare for Andre Lankov to show up or B.R. Myers to just come and hang out. So I get that benefit of talking to people directly if I need to. Okay. Do those guys ever argue about anything? I'm sure they have, but I haven't seen them together ever. Uh, Yeah, I do know there are minor disagreements. Is it possible they're the same person? No, definitely not. Uh, B.R. Myers is easy to understand, uh, much younger. (laughs) So you had the opportunity to visit North Korea. This was permitted because you're a Canadian citizen. Who's not allowed? Americans? 
Uh, no, not at all, actually. Uh, anybody can go there. My tour group was at least a third American. Really? Um, I think maybe it might be kind of like Cuba, where, like, until recently, Americans couldn't go to Cuba uh, because the if they were to go to Cuba and, and spend any money there, they would be breaking American law. Uh. So they would sneak into it. Cuba allowed them to go. They'd have to go through Canada and... There might be spies watching who's boarding, you know, Canadian planes to Cuba. But, yeah, I mean, Americans were welcome there. Maybe they had to pay more. Okay. I do know, uh, I think Americans even pay more for visas to get into China. And incidentally, if you are a foreigner who's going to North Korea, like if you're an American, or anybody actually, then you have to pay, uh, like you're going through China to North Korea, you've got to get a double China visa. So I guess if you're American, that would be a thousand bucks extra, Jesus. Maybe. Okay, John, but you were on a package tour. Yeah. Um, and, okay, first of, all, first of all, how much was it? Uh, approximately, uh, it was organized by uh, my friend Michael Spavor, who's probably up there right now. Uh, he basically booked everything for us, including transportation to China, into North Korea, uh, the tour itself, and all sorts of other things. That figure came to three million. And I brought along uh, 800,000 Korean won also. Of course, I put it into, uh, I decided not to use American money, so I put it into uh, euros, uh, which I thought would be a little bit more embraced there. More international, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you, so you basically spent like just shy of 4,000 bucks. Basically, yeah, which is incidentally the same amount that I paid when I had uh, a major heart problem uh, a few months later, <laughs> unrelated to North Korea, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, how long, what was the duration? How long were you there? I was there for eight days and seven nights, uh, but my group, it was four of us coming from South Korea, and that wasn't enough for uh, you know a good deal for a tourist, so they just merged us in with uh, a, a larger group of about 40 people who only stayed for, I believe, five days. Okay. Yeah. Where'd you guys stay? Uh, we stayed all over the place in uh, Pyongyang. We stayed at the Yanggakdo Hotel. That's the one on the island in the middle of the river that's very sequestered and everything but you get a quite a nice view of a lot of the city at least mm. uh, the other choice is Koryo Hotel which is inside the city ne next to a subway station and sounds like it's a much more neat experience but maybe a little less touristy okay um, we spent one night uh, out in the countryside in uh, near Myohyang San the mountain where they have those two treasure halls uh, for gifts given to the leaders by important people from overseas. Coolest gift. Um, there was, I believe, a train car from Joseph Stalin for uh, Kim Il-sung. I think it was from Joseph Stalin. Mm. Uh, lots of lots of crazy stuff. There was a basketball from signed by Michael Jordan that Madeleine Albright brought for Kim Jong-il. Um, and actually, uh, keeping in mind now that this was late in Kim Jong-il's life, uh, uh, like, Near, near the end, you know, uh, there were so many empty rooms in his smaller palace of gifts. And I, I remarked on that to the guide. I was like, uh, I, I tried to make it say, like, you know, he's got so much more life that he'll have room to, time to fill up all these rooms. But it came across as he's not as popular as his dad. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm lucky nobody remarked on that. So. <laughs> so what was it like with, like, having a minder and being, like, not... Okay, you weren't constantly supervised, right? Uh, no, when we were at hotels, we could be on our own. Uh, basically, there was a crew of minders because we were th 40 people. There were two buses, generally, and each bus maybe had three people. There was uh, one woman who I think we just called Miss Kim. I forget her real name. Uh, we had uh, one guide who was in his mid-20s called uh, Sun Hyuk, 
And I only say that name because I'm curious if anybody listens to the, listening to this has been there also and has met him. Uh, I actually saw him in a documentary once. I saw both of them in one documentary. Uh, and she was portrayed as being very strict with everybody, which she was with us, but was also kind of kind. Uh, and he was seen, depicted as like being very open-minded and everything. Uh, like he would go and drink with us in the bar after and things like that. He was he was a very nice guy. Okay. Uh, I broke down once uh, talking to him about South Korea and not realizing, trying not to make it sound too much like I was from there, but like some of the bad things about about South Korea just to see what he would say. But it was really tough to talk about. Was this the secret that you were from South Korea and had been living in South Korea for like eight years? We tried to keep it a secret, but at the very end. Um, when they were handing us back our passports, we saw the uh, Miss Kim going through page by page, being like, "Interesting." Uh -huh. So they knew. Yeah. Okay. Did you feel so? Did you feel cloistered with the with the relationship with these minders, or, I mean, did you feel corralled? Of course, I, I would have to say so. I feel corralled on any kind of group tour, though. Okay. But yeah, this one in particular was obviously they were there to ideologically guide us also and make sure we got certain messages, like at the Myohyang San Treasure Palace. You know, the the local guy there through our through Miss Kim translating was uh, telling uh, us like, I hope you remember what you saw here, and you can go and tell people around the world like the truth you saw here. In my opinion, that truth was like they wasted a lot of money on these giant marble palaces and chrome-plated AK-47s that the guards had. Yeah, they, they thought that this was an adequate message to send to foreigners to give it a positive impression of North Korea. So package tours are, like, they're typically on a rail, right? Like, you're gonna have to go here, A, B, C, whatever. It was very um, busy, yeah. But in that, like, tell me a bit about what you saw about North Korea. What, what did you observe? What surprised you? Okay. The thing that surprised me most, we went, first of all, we started in South Korea, went to China, and went to North Korea from there. The thing that surprised me the most was that Chinese people are very different from Korean people in like so many ways. This was your first time meeting Chinese people in China. Uh, no, not 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 at all. But um, it was it was a reminder that you know their culture is very different, and North Korean people seem like regular Korean people to me. Like they look similar. Uh, our our guide Sung Hyuk that I mentioned bore a striking resemblance to my friend Kisok, so like they could be cousins or something. Um, and yeah, I'd see it all the time in people's faces, like, they'd look familiar, they'd look like familiar Korean people. And they'd act like it too, they had that, uh, the same kind of disposition where, you know, it's, it's really hard to explain, but, yeah. You know Korea, I mean? Koreans are kind of monocultural, and so, sometimes, yeah, uh, it's okay <laughs> to like, right, but in spite of the, like, the artificial border, these people are kind of the same on the north and the south. Yeah, I don't consider it a border, by the way. It's I just refer to it as like you know DMZ or or right. demarcation line or whatever. Right. That's not a border. Ah, good point. Yeah, more surprises. Oh, I don't know. We we came there prepared to test so many hypotheses. Okay, here's one. On the plane, the stewardess came and sat next to me, and uh, she looked very young. So I asked her her age, and she said 19. And I said, Is that your Korean age? And uh, she said, What does that mean? I thought, oh, of course, yeah, she doesn't know the rest of the world counts age differently. Ah. So I'm like, you know how when you're born, you're one already, and your age advances on New Year's, right? And she said, why would anybody ever do that? Like, it was literally insane to her, you know. So, She'd never heard of that before. North Korea has uh, the same international age counting system as us. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So when you hear Korean age reckoning, South Korean age reckoning. Surprising. Yeah. What else? 
Oh, other surprises. Um, it was very surprising that just around Pyongyang, you'd just see like a cow wandering on its own and be like, who owns that cow? What the hell? Like, the are they not worried that, you know, somebody would steal it? And, like, okay. But yeah, no, that, that was just a thing. Like, there'd be a cow. And, yeah. What about uh, in your photos, you went and just hung out at the park one day? Was that part of the tour? Uh, yes, uh, that was the park where they were having the uh, Liberation Day ceremony? Or Maybe. It, from the photos, it looked like people were just picnicking, but it looked like really normal people just sort of hanging out. Oh, yeah. And snacking and, and playing and whatever. So what was that like? That was quite interesting to see like how North Korean people spend their leisure time. It's, it's always a little unclear on what, like, uh, how much is staged or anything. Uh, me and my friends were a little... Well, some of us were a little bit more on willing to give them some credit that, you know, they weren't there just to, to, you know, perform for us. Like, there were families there that were eating. They were eating mostly clams. Um, and they have a very peculiar method of cooking clams. They'll uh, basically um, douse them in gasoline and light them on fire. <laughs> uh, but, the, I mean, clams are sealed, so you're not going to taste gas when you actually eat them. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, we saw kids wanting, running around. I was always very interested to see, like, groups of kids without adult supervision. Because they'd just be out, like, exploring parts of the city. Like, they'd, from the bus, you could see them, like, just hanging out, like, under an, uh, you know, an overpass or something like that. Uh, a few times in the countryside, I'd see, like, a boy leading around a goat on a leash and things like that. Right, so you spent the bulk of the time in Pyongyang, but you traveled outside to the countryside. Yeah, we, um, we did go to Myohyang San, as I said. We also uh, took a day trip to Kaesong and visited the de- uh, demilitarized zone from the north side. Kaesong is the uh, sort of factory town on the on yeah. the, on the DMZ. Exactly. Oh, very Canadian of you to say DMZ. <laughs> I, I was broken of that habit, unfortunately. Um, it's DMZ. It should be. It should be DMZ. Yeah, in my opinion, it's American concept. Of exactly. Name, so, yeah. Right. I spell Pearl Harbor without a U. Uh, but also, we also <laughs> did go to uh, Nampo uh, at the very end of the trip. It's a co- west coastal city. Uh, where they have this giant barrage that uh, kind of separates the the sea and the river. Um, there's there are a lot of there's a lot of dispute about whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, both sides are like the the oh yeah this destroyed their ecology that's south propaganda. Oh it saved their ecology that's north propaganda. So you know the it, truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. It, it, it could yeah uh, but um, yeah I mean whatever the truth is. You know, neither side is going to adhere to. They're just going to continue telling their own story. We have, speaking of perspective, we have a perspective of North Korea as the Hermit Kingdom, as the you know hell zone that that is like just such a dark nightmare for the people who live there. Um, and that's not really what we see from the photos. Although I know that the tours are probably kind of propaganda. Yeah. Well, but, so I'm just wondering, like. Did, did you observe things that bummed you out while you were there? Absolutely. And I, I should continue talking uh, like about all the travels. It wasn't about the destination, but about the trip there. Mm. Uh, the roads were incredibly bumpy, so we could never get over 60 kilometers an hour. Mm. You couldn't sleep on it because it was like really bouncing around a lot, like way more than a, a rough Mugungha train ride. Um, and I could see the, the countryside villages. Some places the country looked pretty nice. There were maize crops everywhere, like maize corn, you know. Mm. It was hard to tell, like, if it was enough or not, obviously. Um, the the villages actually looked on the outside uh, a little bit more, mm, let's say, a little bit more jury-rigged than a lot of South Korean rural villages, which surprised me. Uh, on the inside, I, I couldn't say, though. What do you mean by jury-rigged? Like, you know, if you if you go on a train out in the countryside, like, the buildings have those... Like Potemkin village kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Uh, North Korean villages are just, they look put together, like, mm. they're, they're assembled. 
I, I can't make any claim about what they're like to live inside. Right. Probably they have less access to electricity, right. things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it looked much more idyllic. My uh, friend Mike, uh, he was he was just taken with it, and he was like, "I would love to live in one of these rural little villages." Um, that's probably why he, you know, is still up there all the time. Uh, but um, down around Kaesong, the mountains were bare. Uh, I'm not sure if that was like an Agent Orange thing. I don't think Agent Orange was used in South in the Korean War, was it? But there was no. a lot of deforestation along a lot of the mountains on both sides mm. to uh, you know clear out uh, cover for people. And North this Korea dated back to the war, you think? Uh, I believe so. Anyway, okay. I'm pretty certain. Uh, at the very least, from all the like bombardment, it would have right. it would have really deforested a lot of mountains. South Korea had that project in the '60s where they did a heavy reforestation project. North Korea is starting to now, but it's kind of a little too late, and the, oh. the erosion on mountains around Kaesong was intense. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, however, however that happened, like, if there were really not many trees on mountains before, there probably weren't as many as there are now around Seoul. But uh, there certainly are fewer trees around Kaesong on mountains than there, there were before the war. Okay. Anything else that bummed you out? I, anything else that bummed me out? There, there were a lot of things. Uh, on our last night, we went to the uh, Kaesong Moon Fun Fair. It's like a nighttime uh, amusement park where they have had these rides that were installed in 2009 that were uh, like from the Italian company, I think it's called Zamperla. Uh, so these are like high-tech advanced rides, certainly better than anything that was in South Korea at that exact time. And Honestly, North Korea seems to be expanding their uh, parks even more now because that's kind of Kim Jong-un's thing. But um, They have the amusement park advantage as well as the nuclear advantage. Yeah. Okay. But while we were there, um, I didn't ride any rides. I was going around with my camera and video camera and just getting as much footage and stuff. I, I don't like going to amusement parks to use the rides. I just like... That's why I like abandoned ones, because you don't have to ride the rides. You can just take pictures. I'm reminded of the fact, I'm thinking of you there at the amusement park. You were walking around with your camera. I mean, John, you were so far away from your cats. Was it difficult to travel without them and not um, be able to share that with them? It was, It was. well, they don't care about the pictures, but it was very dismaying, like, being away from my home, my cats, everything. It was really, really tough, and it, it hit me emotionally very badly several times. Really? Uh, just the idea of where I was and what's between there and my home was really tough. Oh. But, okay. yeah, okay, so that was another thing. But the amusement park thing, while I was doing this, a couple kids came up to me and, and were, like, asking to get pictures taken. I thought they wanted me to take their picture, but they wanted to get a picture with me. Mm -hmm. And so we're setting this up, and our minders come over and are like, oh, no, they're not from Pyongyang. You can't interact with them. Oh. Which is strange, because I'm pretty certain we've interacted with non-Pyongyang kids before, right. including at another amusement park. Maybe these kids were notorious for not being from Pyongyang. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, so we were physically separated from them, and it was explained to the kids, like, you can't, and all that. I think they did get some pictures. Hopefully they kept them. And, yeah, my friend, one of my friends on the tour, just at that point, he was just, like, super negative for the rest of the trip, like, all the way back through China, back to South Korea. So that was, we went out on a very sour mood because of that one incident. Really? So, so you were suggesting, like, it was actually kind of psychologically traumatizing when you were kind of realizing where you were and because you know having lived in South Korea for eight years mm. and being drawn out of that can you talk to me more about that well basically uh, it hit me I think one of the possibly the first night I, I got back from the microbrewery in the main floor of the Yangakdo which is quite nice um, and I, I had a, another like Dedonggang beer with me and I, I decided to uh, you know drink in my room a bit uh, I, I filled a glass and went and took a bath while I was drinking 
and I actually barfed on myself in the bathtub. I don't like, kind of like, it was kind of like a barf sob. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I think that was Han. Oh, no shit. No kidding. Yeah. Some, so, Han, some Han came and hit you. I, I absolutely think, like, I, I felt the emotion of Han. And I don't know. I so would what, is the, what is the emotion of Han, by the way? Uh, it's the emotion of, like, I would just say, like, utter hopelessness. That Korean about, people feel. Yeah, about things they can't control, like... You know, they couldn't control the fact that Japan ruled them for almost 50 years. And they couldn't control their liberation even. Uh, their country was separated and there was a huge war that was basically the worst case scenario you could imagine almost right. other than nuclear. So Han is supposedly the root of the Korean melancholy and yeah. sort of uh, just maybe a negative perspective. Uh, yeah. And I strongly believe in it now yeah. because of that experience. Yeah. Uh -huh. okay. uh, <laughs> It, usually it doesn't manifest itself with bodily fluids quite so much, but, uh, yeah. Okay, so the American academic, uh, Bruce Cummings, is uh, an expert on Korean history, but he's also kind of controversial because he has perspectives which aren't necessarily part of the status quo perspective. Right, on he's the, the one who thinks that... Uh, it wasn't necessarily North Korea that invaded first, isn't it? I think he, I think he grayifies a lot of yeah. things and just sort of maybe sometimes puts nuance. Maybe sometimes he's mistaken. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. What I like about his perspective is it was the first time I ever read anything where someone suggested to me that you know North and South Koreans share a lot in common. Mm -hmm. uh, they eat the same food. They sit around. They sit around and drink soju. What similarities did you observe? Uh, it was really just the, the temperament was very similar and um, like the, that kind of kindness that they had for most of the time that also could turn ugly in the same way really when it came to a lot of things there were there were uh, remarkable differences also like um, I on one of the first nights I asked my guide uh, do Korean people like to drink and he said not really but yeah it's it's interesting that they've how they've developed differently it's almost like getting to go to an alternate dimension or something like if you saw the TV show sliders it's like an episode of that set in Korea. Because it is it is the same country, really. It just, it's like a few choices were made that caused critical differences. Wait, quickly, Sliders, I haven't seen it. Sliders, oh, really? they must slide into a different era and then yeah, experience that. 90s show with Jerry O'Connell and, what's his name? Gimli from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was uh, an interesting concept that you know, went the way of most 90s science fiction shows. But you felt this was what you were experiencing when you were on your trip. Absolutely. Okay. Mike uh, tried to, you know, portray it as like going back in time to the 60s South Korea. Right. But I, um, I think especially now that they're modernizing and they have like modern conveniences out there and smartphones even, that it doesn't feel like the past. It just feels like a present with, you know, strange changes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing the differences. In a lot of ways... I think people are starting to see North Korea now as more Korean than South Korea. Right. Because South Korea is very globalized, and South Korean people eat a lot of foreign foods and things uh -huh. like that. Uh, North Koreans um, have, in a lot of ways, unintentionally preserved a lot of things that have been forgotten here. Like, you mentioned soju. South Korean people don't drink soju. They drink uh, soju-flavored artificial alcohol crap. North Koreans drink uh, soju distilled uh, from rice. What's the difference in taste? Have you ever had andong soju? Yeah, but it was like, it totally kicked my ass. You can taste the, yeah, well, andong soju is usually 40%, but there's okay. a 20% variety. You can taste the rice in real soju. Uh -huh. And if you drink, like, uh, you know, the two main ones, you don't taste rice, you know? Right. Maybe you taste blueberry these days or something. But. Anything else you want to tell me about the trip? One thing that I noticed about, uh, like, 
their awareness of our perceptions. Uh, our, our guide, Miss Kim, actually said at one point, like, I know we don't, you know, have a lot, but that's the fault of America. Which was a very interesting and actually very rational way to frame their situation. Um, it wasn't the fault of North Korea mismanaging, it was America's embargo or whatever, that America is presenting, preventing North Korea from going out into the world. Um, often their pro propaganda would start with like, one of the first two lines would be good, like, yeah, you know, we're the victim of American imperialism. And then they'd go on to like, Americans like running around the countryside, raping everybody and throwing babies down wells. And it's like, you know, it goes from like, yeah, I can kind of get on Barto. Whoa, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> very quickly. Uh -huh. um, there are, uh, I actually saw a great lecture by B.R. Myers last year about, the, there are basically three levels of propaganda in North Korea. B.R. Myers wrote the book, uh, The Cleanest Race. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, he uh, outlined the three main channels, and if I remember correctly, they are uh, propaganda to like locals. I might be wrong, I, I, there, there are a couple models. It might be, uh, I think the, the lowest level is like propaganda that isn't really that actively made, that's, you know, set out among locals. Uh, then there's kind of like the showiness of the state, and then there's the external stuff where they're like aiming bluster at, you know, North Korea, South Korea or America. And North Korean people don't hear all this stuff about like Sea of Fire and in Seoul and things like that. Uh, I think they hear a lot more about like, ah, oh, can you believe what these Americans did? Yeah. They probably know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they know about like, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement in America. Um, that might be politicized by the central news uh, committee because it makes America look bad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they would definitely have access to very different information about the world and their country that we do at mm. all times. Mm. So uh, I think probably what they get might even have a little bit more rationality to it. Um, but it also, you know, can easily push a lot of lies into into the conversation. Uh, while I was there, I was I was working on the idea that North Korea is kind of like a cult. The difference between a cult and North Korea is that a cult is like really personal with everybody. And in North Korea, like most of the people just went on with their daily lives and were like aware that these gods were watching over them. Um, it was much more impersonal than I thought, uh, which was very unusual. Uh, so I'd put it more as like a religion, like you know. If, if you're a Christian or a Catholic, or sorry, in, in that's Korean terms, a Protestant or a Catholic, you know, you're like, yeah, I, I worship God, I believe in the Bible, and Jesus is good and everything, but you're not like uh, losing sleep over it, mm. you know. Um, you can have kind of like slightly more lax beliefs, and maybe you have to ratchet it up for funerals and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, a much more casual part of their existence. They just accept it as background noise, as far mm -hmm. as I can tell. They don't criticize it, because that would be very dangerous, mm -hmm. but they don't actively engage with it in any intellectual level. Uh, and that makes their lives better. Having been there, do you have any desire to return and do it again? The package I, tour? I've been saying since 2012, which was, what was that, Juche 100, I think? Okay. Or 60? I forget. Uh, some important year. Um, I, I want to go back. Uh, I keep saying next year, but I keep not being able to. Yeah, I, I need to get back and see like how things have changed. I mean, my trip there was 2010, and things have changed so much in those five years uh, that I really need to go back and uh, take it in again. You know? John Dunbar is a writer and journalist in Seoul and a longtime resident of Korea. Thanks for speaking to Korea Fun. Always a pleasure.
Koreafile for this week. You can find new episodes of The Koreafile on iTunes and Stitcher and as a feature contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, eslrok.com, and blogtalkradio.org. If you like what you hear, like us on Facebook. And please leave a review of the show wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Then, we're taking a month off for the holidays, but join us back here on January 6th for part one of a two-part conversation with researcher Tommy Tran on Osaka's Jeju diaspora. Until then, thanks for listening. From Montreal, I'm Andre Goulet.